Today's Maverick Sports Podcast guest has played rugby at the highest level and coached in the cauldron of Super Rugby, a competition most coaches agree is harder to win than a Rugby World Cup. Robbie Fleck was a box centre and a successful age group coach before being thrust into the Stormers' head coaching role when current England mentor Eddie Jones vacated the position after only 10 days in Cape Town. Despite the difficult circumstances, Fleck led the Stormers to two conference titles in his first two years in charge and was instrumental in Sir Khaleesi's elevation to the Stormers' captaincy that started him on the path to the Springbok leadership. Flecky is currently enjoying a sabbatical from the game, watching Super Rugby with his mates and having a few beers and planning his next rugby adventure. Welcome to the Maverick Sports Podcast, Rob. Cheers. Thank you very much, Craig. Good to be here. Are you having a few beers? Yes. <laughs> in between, uh, in between uh, sessions, but you are. And, and this is the thing, I think, in South African rugby. We see a lot of our coaches go overseas or just fall out of the game and you know, you're 44 years old, got a lot of intellectual capital. You obviously got a lot to offer South African rugby still. And do you want to stay in South African rugby or if opportunities come up overseas, you'll go that way? I think, Craig, the, the immediate sort of thought process from my side or from my family's side was that we wanted to take six months off okay. and um, and sort of reassess after those six months. So I finished up with the Stormers uh, in Western Province in October last year. And basically since then, uh, I've been sort of getting my, you know, things together and 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 sort of working on things outside of rugby, try and get a career going there. So I can set myself um, to go back into rugby at some stage. Um, you know, whether that happens within the next couple of months or in 12 months' time, you know, I'll, I'll let that just ride itself out. Yeah. Um, that's a journey in itself. But um I certainly believe that I've still got something to add uh, in terms of rugby, whether that's locally in South Africa or abroad. Um, that's a decision I'll make, you know, later on. But um, right now, I'm just enjoying watching rugby. Um, I'm enjoying, um, you know, being able to comment freely on the game uh, and and look at it from a different angle. I think that everybody who does take a sabbatical from the game learns a lot more during that period, and then they come back stronger as coaches or players for that matter. And that's the view I've taken on it, mm. you know, over the next six months. Um, but I'm certainly keen to contribute again. I think, you know, I've contributed to South African rugby over the last 20 years, yeah. 10 years as a player, 10 years as a coach. So um, I still think that I've got some more, something more to offer, whether that's for the Stormers during the current, um, you know, campaign or in future campaigns, or like I said, it could be, you know, overseas gig. I mean, obviously, when you out of the, the cauldron of it, you – like you say, you can view it differently. So do you think sometimes we be, when you're in the coaching maelstrom, you just get too close to it, you sometimes need that perspective, that distance? Are you finding that now when you look at the game with sort of fresh eyes, maybe you see something or or just yeah, see trends that maybe you weren't picking up that easily? Absolutely. I think that, you know, in the cauldron, as you say, of uh, especially here in Cape Town and Stormers, <laughs> coaching for the Stormers, you know, you you probably focus too much on the job in hand and you don't sort of see, you know, take a step back and because you don't have time and there's just so much pressure and um you know, you're just really managing on the on the go and and you know, you don't really have time to reflect and, and take sort of a step outside and have an objective point of view of maybe how to run the team or, you know, how the game has been played and, and what, you know, other teams are doing. So it's it's pretty manic and um and you're under that constant pressure of having to perform. And um, now, you know, I've got that opportunity to step back and watch the game from in a different light. And I, I certainly believe that I'm learning a lot more again, you know, really just, you know, taking that step back, you know, and, and you're coming up with ideas on one, how to play the game. And, and But 
probably more importantly how to manage a team and and the mistakes yeah. that you made during your your coaching time as as the head coach of the Stormers to you know what you could have done better both culturally management wise strategic wise how do you manage um you know the system within Western Province and Stormers or any team for that matter so it's good you know it's it's a great way to just take a different perspective and 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 learn and and as long as you stay in the game i think that um you know, if you take a step back and say, "Look, for the next six months, I'm not going to be involved at all," I think then you're going to lose touch. And yeah. uh, so you want to, you know, stay in it. And and whether that's just constantly analysing what's happening on the weekends, games, um, keeping up to date with players, you know, current players in the Stormers setup, keeping up to date with the management, you know, and just finding out what they're doing. And and look, if there's something there that I can add, you know, I will. And if they ask for it, I'll gladly, you know help them out but um you know at this stage i'm just enjoying that um you know sitting out of the game for a while well, we'll come back to super rugby and that but later on and everything else that's happening in rugby including maybe the springboks playing in six nations or seven nations but we'll get back to that later but let's go back to robbie fleck the the schoolboy rugby player when when did you i mean were you a good sportsman uh, all-round sportsman and when did you sort of realize rugby might might be a career option um yeah I I guess I was a, I was pretty good at well I was a cade sport um you know all round was probably the right sort of way I saw it um you know I was I was fairly decent at swimming played you know first team cricket uh played first team rugby you know did okay at athletics you know but um <laughs> never really the you know the you know the winner in anything just you know just did well enough to you know make those teams and um I loved my sport and I guess that was the passion yeah you know that drove me in all those sports you know it, it didn't matter what type of sport you know rugby wasn't per se um you know the one that I knew I was going to become a springbok or you know get to international status whether that's playing or coaching it's just that it was part of the makeup you know the family that I grew up in was part of growing up in bishops you know it was um you know sport was important yeah. at that school and um and I loved my time there. So, did you make Craven Week? Uh, I did. Yeah. I did make Craven Week in my matric year. Um, yeah. We had a pretty good side. We had some decent players that came out of that side. You know, Dafin Huslin was in there. Corner Cricket was our captain. Uh, Jake Boer, Horty Lowe, Percy Montgomery. So it was a serious side. Yeah. Um, and um, and that team went on to win the Under Twenty One Trophy. So it was a great sort of grooming process that we had going in Western Province. But I did make Craven Week, and um, I didn't, you know further it in uh, in cricket or anything like that um and then i went to varsity you know and i've got a bursary to varsity and only lasted a year there <laughs> um but rugby took over and and probably in my second or third year out of school when i got my first contract from western province that i think okay well maybe there's something here you know there's maybe a career what was that about 95 ish 95 so yeah. the first uh, you know first we pro were contracts first basically. pro contracts yeah so like i said we were part of an under 21 side that was um unbeatable in south africa um we smashed everyone um a seriously good team i think there were probably seven or eight springboks that yeah, skinstead came. came from natal skinstead was there yep yeah. and um you know it was um it was a it was a proper side and, mm. and we played great rugby and 
And at that stage, you know, South Africa had just won the, the World Cup and Francois Pino was busy negotiating contracts for, you know, the Springboks who had won and, and all the unions were busy negotiation, in negotiations with young players like myself. And I think my first contract, well, the first contracts that they offered us were 50 grand or something like that a year. So, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask. So, it was not week- bad for a youngster, four and a yeah. half grand a month, somewhere around. Well, that. you know, yeah. when we were under 21, I remember we used to get like, um, I think it was about 500 bucks and for a game. For a game. And then, you know, we, I used to keep two fifty. I used to give that to my old man, and then the other two fifty I took out for the night's jewel. <laughs> so um, you know, it was um, good times, and and then yeah, you know, that team specifically, there was a number of players that got contracted, mm. um, along with some senior players. And yeah, I think it was fifty thousand rand was our first contract. And yeah. uh, you know, when you you know when you're twenty two years old, that's a lot of money, and you're having fun. And uh, yeah, but that's when sort of it settled in that you know there's maybe something here. But that. Team talking about going out on the jaw. That team was a notorious jawling team as well, wasn't it? I yeah. mean, you, as good as you were in the field, you you guys were pretty good in the nightclub too. We were, we were, <laughs> and you know, a number of you know names and faces come to mind. You know, I mean, with probably Monty and and Skinstead leading the charge, and Orti. you know, we, Orti Lai, You know, we had we had a we had a naughty group. You know, and yeah. and and but that actually came through in the way we played the game, and and we had a lot of you know we had a free spirit and. The coaches and that we had at that time, you know, sort of embraced that and allowed us to pretty much do what we wanted, and uh, and that sort of progressed into that Western Province side of '97, uh, '98, um, you know, '99, and into that Stormer setup because a number of those Province Under Twenty One players progressed, you know, mm. through the ranks and and went from Stormers into the Springbok setup and. And credit to the coaches at the time, you know, Harry Fulhoun, Alan Solomons, um, and Nick Mallett for that stage, you know, for that matter at, at Springbok level. They identified that there was a key, you know, core group of players coming out of Western Province that were playing a, a decent brand of rugby. That was not really the South African way. It was yeah. maybe old school Western Province of the Coral Duplessis, Fafa Kunutsa, Donny Kheber era. But we had sort of taken that and 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 implied that sort of freedom and and that that expressive sort of style in under 21s into our stormer setup and um and we were successful and and we were successful because of the freedom that we had both on and off the field and and you know coaches modern day coaches and I guess I'm also part of that you know is that sometimes we try and you know curtail that a little bit and you try and put them in you know, in, in systems and, uh, you know, and it doesn't necessarily always work for those players, you know. Yeah. You've got to have a look at that group, what's available. And if there's a core group of players who are the real personality of that and the real characters and they play a, a certain style and they behave a certain way off the field, you know, you've got to tap into that and use that energy. Yeah, that 99 storm aside, so that, that was Men in Black, the original sort yeah. of Men in Black team. And um, I know Skinstad was involved in the kit design. I don't know if you guys all got involved, maybe you can tell us, but – you guys played some amazing rugby that year and then that semi-final against the Highlanders at Newlands and everything sort of went pear in that game. Do you still sort of think that was our best chance to win Super Rugby with that group of players? Look, definitely back then as a player, that was our best chance. Um, I think there's been one or two opportunities yeah. post that, uh, which we can discuss, but certainly that 99 side um, was our best opportunity when I, in my playing days. Uh, you know, you go back to the jersey. I mean, it was the 98 jersey that was, you <laughs> know, that Christmas tree. And, you know, it, it really, you know, we didn't have an identity. You know, the, the mm. jersey was a combination of colors from southwestern districts, Borland and Western Province, and everybody wanted to have their piece. And, and it just 
you know, and the, and the team itself, you know, was a mix of Boland and Southwestern. So the, culturally, it, it just didn't work, you know. Mm. And I, I, I've, Harry Floon, in my opinion, was an exceptional rugby coach. You know, he was dynamic. He, he thought outside of the box. He saw things differently. And every, every franchise that he went to, whether it was the Lions, the Sharks, or some problems, he won some yeah. Curry Cup or some trophy. So it was his first attempt at international rugby in terms of Super Rugby. We hadn't had a great, um, you know, track record in playing New Zealand teams. I think it was the Super Ten or whatever yeah, it was yeah. back in the day when Western Province was playing. So it was always going to be a tough, and it was a brand new team, and it was a mixture of you know a whole lot. But we didn't have an identity. We didn't have a culture. We didn't know who we were, where we Western Province, where we you know whatever. But then the '99 side, when you know, yes, Skinset did have a say, and and the players also had a say in terms of what that jersey was, along with Adidas, and I think at our time it was Fedture who are yeah. our main sponsors, and there was a good collaboration between everyone to come up with this, you know, clean cut men in black um, campaign. Um, the players were no longer a mixture of um, you know Southwestern District Boyland. It was a core group of Western Province players from those under 21 days and everybody really gelled and got on and um, you know Alan Solomons took over and he picked up the pieces from the 98 trip uh, yeah and um, and and he allowed that that team to grow and and there were some senior core players like a Robbie Brink who had been at a World Cup you know who was you know behind the scenes leading you know and mm. uh, we had a great leader in in terms of Skinstead and Corner Cricket yeah, they and, had a lot um, of leaders that team. If you think we about had it. plenty, yeah. and 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 they were young. You yeah. Know? So it wasn't had they'd been tarnished or had been. You know, these guys were free and and energetic and and keen to prove that we were a strong team. Yeah. And um, and we played like that, and and we had a cracker, you know, tour, and and we won one or two games on that tour, and that sort of confidence built, and and then we I think we had seven or eight games unbeaten at Newlands where there were thirty forty thousand people every single game, yeah. and just that alone, you know, just the energy. I mean, it was ten points guaranteed when you ran onto the field. Yeah, you know, we had the men in black song as you ran out, mm. and people, you know, abseiling down, you know, mm. onto the field. I mean, the the, the 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 vibe was incredible, and just all these the sea of black jerseys and just. Just really special, special times. And, and we played to that, you know, and that gave us the energy to play well. And, and then, like you said, unfortunately, it came to that semifinal, you know, a few, uh, few things leading up to that, you know, which um, wasn't ideal. But on the day, we were beaten by a better Highlanders team. Did you guys all buy into that? What was the word? Uh, threatened strike or was that overdone, overplayed? I think it was overplayed. Um, you know, we had a senior group of players that represented us. And, um, you know, at the time, you know, Western Province had been notorious for, you know, whether it was good or bad negotiations. And this one was a bad one because it was done on the morning of the <laughs> game. Um, but there's been pl plenty of other incidents like that over time. I mean, I know that Michael Duplessis stood up against uh, – you know, uh, I think it was Picard and those guys, and said, "Look, we're not playing." You know, because yeah. they weren't getting paid, and they went so, to Transvaal, didn't they, Michael and and Cora for did. a year? But there was a Curry Cup final game or a semi-final game where the players stood in the change room and refused to to go out. You know, and 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 I guess the lesson learned from things like this is like, do your negotiations in January with with your employer and say, you know, if we make a a semi-final or final. You know what is the what is the, the match fee going to be? Because there there must be something for the players, and there has to be. Look, these days it's all built into your contracts, but still back in those days, yeah, yeah. there was it's no such thing. Yeah. Exactly. So, look, our, our incident um, was unfortunate. 
Um, you know, I think that um, it could have been handled better from both sides, certainly. Yeah. To be honest, there was never going to be any strike. Uh, yeah. No players. We didn't have any meetings about that we're not going onto the field or anything like that. It wasn't even remotely close to that. Um, but there were negotiations happening in behind the scenes. And, and the problem was it was all done at last minute. So, yeah. and, Do you think uh, it affected the performance no, of the game? not at all. No. Because it was, done, it, was, it was done amongst the senior players. And so it would have been the captain and, uh, um, you know, I know who they were, but there were four other players who sat on that. And they negotiated with the, 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 the powers that be at that time. And, and they were only involved. The rest of the playing group were not involved. And, um, and, and, and credit to those guys. You know, they kept us out of it. And uh, it was just the newspaper reports that were coming up in the morning. Yeah, it came out that morning, didn't it? Well, exactly. It? Yeah. it was all over the Argus and, you know, whatever, and it was in every single newspaper. And then players are striking. And I walked down to breakfast and I read in the paper that we're striking. You know, and <laughs> it was the first thing that I had known about it. So... <laughs> You know, it was it was blown out, and and the performance in itself, to be honest, we weren't affected by it. It was a rainy semi final. If it was a, I can tell you now, if it was a three o'clock game or a five o'clock game in the sun, and we had this, and we had the same sort of energy, um, you know, I, I we would have won that game. Yeah. I, I do believe that, but it it suited the Highlanders. Um, you know, it was wet conditions. Their skill set was better than ours. They had a great eighth man in Isatola Market. He was getting over the advantage line all the time. They had Jeff Wilson. They had Tony Brown, who kicked us to death. Mm. Tactically, they were better than us. Mm. Um, you know, we couldn't rely on our, our sort of counter-attacking game because it was raining. And uh, they were the better team. And and and, yeah. and that's what it came down to. So you, that year, 99, obviously the Super Rugby went well. You made your Springbok debut that year. Uh, Italy, 74-3. You scored yes. a try. I mean, that... Uh, I always wonder about these things. Like, you know, some guys make the debut against the All Blacks or England or the British and Irish Lions. Some guys make their, their debut against Italy. Does it make any difference? Uh, does it feel different? No, I, you know, a debut is a debut. You know, you're mm. putting on that jersey, and um, it, it doesn't matter who's in front of you. You know, it's it's a it's a massive honour, and your mental prep and your support is is still the same as as if you would be debuting against the, the All Blacks. You know. Yeah. Um, so it was a special time, and um, at that stage, you know, Springbok rugby was fairly strong, mm. and we had a great '98 year. And um, I'd been on tour with the Springboks during the '98 uh, tour overseas, where we just lost that last game. I yeah. think we, it was, we needed to win that game to equal the record or break, break the record. The record. I think 17 was tests. a tied record. Yeah. And there was, you know, culturally the team was in a good place, and and we had some, you know, really strong players and. And so, you know, to make my debut with on the back end of that and, and having toured already with him, you know, was special because, you know, I felt I was in a good place. I felt like I was well supported amongst this, the management and the and fellow players. And we had a great 99 campaign with the Stormers. So mm. a lot of those players had been selected and justifiably so. I guess it was an easier debut than probably some would get. I mean, shame, you know, the guys like Dave Van Houston and, and yeah. Kathy Detoy had to debut against the All Blacks in Dunedin, in Dunedin which is tough. Mm. So I probably got a, you know, some of us got an easier ride in terms of the opposition, but the actual prep and the experience would be like any other debut. But you were pretty much an ever-present that year. You went right through into the World Cup. Um, I remember at Newlands, it was an ugly game against Australia. You guys had lost three in a row in the yeah. rugby, or as it was called in the Tri-Nations. Desperately needed a win before the World Cup. You scored a try from close range. Yeah. Ugly game, but uh, that that sort of just boosted the team just before the World Cup, didn't it? That ten nine win. It did it. absolutely. You know, I think what was happening in ninety nine, there was a bit of a change in terms of the way that Nick probably wanted to play the game, and so he wanted to. I mean, Nick's always been a dynamic guy, and he wanted to play like a dynamic game of rugby that the Springboks could, you know, sort of enforce. And 
probably our skill set, you know, wasn't quite there yet, and and it would take a matter of time before we get there. And uh, because we had shown signs of this dynamic game on that '98 tour, you think about Skinstead's tries against Ireland yeah. and Scotland, and and the performance during '98 in the Tri Nations against Australia and New Zealand, like we had that ability. And I think Nick wanted to push that. And when we got to the Tri Nations of '99, we started well. Before that, we had a poor performance against Wales, and um, remember we lost. Oh, that that's game. right. It was the opening of the Millennium. The first time we had ever lost to Wales, and there was a bit of controversy on that tour. And um, and the team didn't seem like it was in a good space. And I think at that stage, you know, Nick was toying with the idea of you know the the, the Bob Skinstead versus Gary Tarkman already, yeah. and the camp started to feel that. You know, and it was my first year, but um, you could really pick up on you know that it was it was a prickly environment, and uh, and it just wasn't settled like it was in that '98 tour. And and you could feel that there was changes not amongst the playing staff, but also in terms of the way we probably wanted to play. Yeah, and. Um, we had those losses on tour. I think we lost 28-0 in Dunedin. Yeah. And then we lost in, I think it was in Brisbane in the heat against Australia. And, and we had a few injuries and, and Gary was in and out of the side. So, you know, we were going through those sort of changes. And um, when we got to Newlands, it, it had to be a massive game because I think we just lost to uh, the All Blacks in Pretoria. And, um, it, you know, it, for the confidence of the group, and where we wanted to go, um, you know, it was a must win. And it, like you said, it was messy. But we brought in Brendan Fenter. So then now ah, there was a bit of rugby acumen coming in there, good rugby brain. You know, you still had guys like Rassi and Rasmus and those guys, you know, contributing to the leadership group and the tactics. And I think already then we started to change a little bit and we started to play the South African way, yeah. which we took into that World Cup in 99. Yeah. It was a good win from our perspective. It was a must-needed win. And I remember going into the 99 World Cup and everyone saying we're going to lose to Scotland. Yeah. But we stuck to what we had done. And Nick, I must say to his credit, trained us incredibly hard in plate when we were fit, fit as anything. And I remember weighing 89 kilograms, the lightest I'd ever been since school. And we, were, we, we weren't the most talented side in terms of skill set, but we had a monster pack mm. and we had a hardworking pack and a hardworking backline. And that suited us. Yeah. And it's pretty much the way Rassi played now in this exactly. World Cup. And um, and we went there and we beat Scotland and, and we went through those round-robin games and then we smashed England, the South African What was way. it like watching Yanni De Beer, yeah. De Beer, thank you, knocking over five drop goals from a few metres to his left or right? Craig, it was amazing. Look, I think that game, I think I made 17 tackles yep. okay, as an outside centre, which is a, a huge amount, and I touched the ball once in, in the game. But that was the tactic. Mm. And, you know, it, it it wasn't about being flash. It was about an extremely good defensive system. Yeah. Okay. A proper kicking game spearheaded by Yanni De Beer and, uh, and a monster pack. And there's a lot said in that because Rassi was part of that. Brendan Fenter was part of that. And all these guys went on to become great coaches with a similar sort of philosophy. Yeah. You think about Brendan at Saracens, same thing. Big pack, massive defense, big kicking game. And Rassi now with the Springboks. Yeah. You know exactly the same tactics. It's the the Springbok way, and 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 but the so we could digress here quietly. But the the fallacy is well, the Springboks don't score tries, but they do on the back of that big pack Correct. on the back of territory and field position. It's not, you know, right. you're not running it from eighty meters like the All Blacks do occasionally. No, and but I it's think, about being in the right areas. And I think that's where a lot of coaches get it wrong, including myself, is that you know I wanted to play you know a brand of rugby that that suited me as a player. You mm. know that's. You know, it was it was expressive, it was free, and, you know, it was, you know, on the back end of turnover ball and space, whatever. But the structured approach um, that that team created and what Rusty has created at the Springbok level 
creates those opportunities. It might not be flash and great to watch. If you think about the Springboks in now in 2018, we didn't have a great year. Mm. But Rassi was already implementing the style. And it was going to take a matter of time before the players got used to that and got comfortable with it and got confidence in it. And But there was massive media and public pressure to score tries and to be, you know, what the New Zealand were way is yeah. and, but why do we have to go that we've way we've never been that way we've yeah. never been that way every single team Springbok team or franchise side borrowing the Lions has done well when we play the South African way but if we try and copy the New Zealanders which a lot of coaches make the mistake of you know that's their, that's their you strength. need the skill set first don't exactly. you exactly like and that, that starts at grassroots exactly. level it doesn't start at our level so Rassi was smart enough to understand what was successful in the past. You think about Jake Whiteside in 2007, was it? Yeah. Exactly the same thing. Monster mm-hmm. pack, a great 9 and 10 combination and free and, 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 and Butch. You know, Monty at the back with a massive boot and, and goals kicking success and a, and a massive defense system run by Jacques Free and these guys. So it's, 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 it's a carbon coffee. And, and that's where Rassi, to his credit, did his research as a player and as a coach and said, what is, the South African way. We can score tries when we have to, but it's not going to be about retaining position for 90% of the game and mm. running from your own try line. It's going to be smart rugby and putting you in a position of strength and, and, and attacking from turnovers, which they did against England. We didn't necessarily change much. The game plan was the game plan. Yeah, it, yeah. it stayed. You mean in 2019? In 2019. Yeah, yeah, the final. But yeah. we dominated them physically. So then they were on the back foot and that's how we got to And then they the made ball. silly errors like trying to run the ball Correct. from the end goal area, which they hadn't done in Correct. four years under Eddie Jones. Suddenly, suddenly that starts in a World Cup final. I mean, exactly. that's ridiculous. That's pressure, right? It's pressure. You know, I think that Eddie, for me, I think he he, he, he was too clever. You know, he, he, he wanted to create something different and, and try and beat the Springboks, you know, by – one keeping ball in hand and thinking that just running at our defense eventually would break. But you know, that's that's crazy, man. His his whole tactic building up to the game was he kept on turning the all blacks around. He dominated the all blacks physically with some of those big runners. But you know, his attacking kicking game was outstanding. So the mm. all blacks didn't know whether to defend high or deep, and that gave them the advantage. And then the English set piece was always going to be stronger. But against South Africa, their set piece was never going to be stronger. Not the scrums, not the lineouts, not the malls. Mm. So they had to kick intelligently and with the South Africans defending high, you know, with their wings up, there was plenty of space in behind, you know, with Vili isolated. But they didn't try and do that once. And that played into South Africans' hands. It gave them confidence. We started to smash them back. We dominated them physically. We dominated up front. We dominated the set piece. And there, it's all she wrote. While we're on the subject of the World Cup final, and, and you've probably analyzed this, I mean, for, for instance, England won the toss. Now, normally the toss in rugby is not a big deal. It's not cricket. But on this occasion, it was quite a big deal because they were both territory-based teams. Mm-hmm. And, and England, for the first time in forever, won the toss and decided to receive. Now, as a coach, as a think, asking you as a coach, why would you suddenly do that? Put yourself inside your 22 and give the Springboks, who you know want to play territory, field position immediately. What logic could there be behind that decision? I guess there's two things there. One, you know, that they probably wanted to get that ball and and, and, and I think his, his approach was ball in hand and feeling that he could run at us and maybe he could run it out of his 22 and, and keep position that way. I risk in a World Cup final. 100%, you know, in my opinion, a bad tactic. Um, you know, what worked for them like you said, prior to all those games prior, is that they kicked off, the opposition kicked out, and then they had a set-piece yeah. play pattern that they successfully used. First try against the All Blacks, I think, was from Yep, it came through a few phases, but yeah. 
So maybe, you know, he was thinking that he was worried about South Africa contesting the line-out, you know, their first line-out. So then he would be, you know, um, giving away position on the halfway line. Uh, maybe he wanted to run at them, you know, but it didn't make sense to receive and then kick out because then you're giving South Africa the first bite to the cherry in your own half mm. from a set-piece point of view. And if I was Rossi in South Africa, I would have mauled that for a penalty immediately. Yeah. And immediately you three points down in a World Cup. And point. they did win a penalty as it was. The laws went over the top. They didn't kick it over. But in the exactly. first 40 seconds, Pollard had a shot at goal. Yeah. So mm. I think that, you know, maybe thinking too much about you know, trying to unsettle the opposition because, you know, would South Africa have panicked if they had taken, you know, received the kickoff? No, you know, they they would have planned, you know, to disrupt England from that first set piece if South Africa kicked out from the kickoff. Yeah. No problem. But, you know, South Africa backed their defense. So I don't think Jacques Ninova and those guys would have been worried about it. They would have said, perfect, we will contest their line out. So I think they were ready for the kick, receiving the kickoff. But I don't think it bothered them too much at all, the fact that Eddie went the other way. Yeah. And it backfired. Talking about Ninaba quickly, I mean, he's the new Springbok coach. You've worked closely with him at the Stormers in Western Province for many years. I mean, and I guess you were the attack coach at one point and he was the defense coach. So there's going to be a natural bit of bumping of heads yeah. there because you want more time, he wants more time. Um, but what's your sort of view of him uh, as as a head coach now? Um, I know Rossi's still in the background and probably not much is changing on a day-to-day on the field training process, but he's going to have to take on a lot more now as, as the official head coach. He is, and he certainly is capable. He is the one guy who can do it. Uh, you know, you think about the history between him and Rassi, it goes years back, you mm. know, and um, from varsity days. So the critical thing is the, is the relationship between the two of them, you know, and that's unbreakable. You know, they trust each other, and and therefore it's going to work for South Africa. If it was any other relationship where there's a new sort of coach coming in and Rassi is still the puppet master and pulling the strings, you know, in terms of contracting players, in terms of how we're going to train and all those things, you know, as a head coach, you you, you probably want to put your own stamp yeah. on things because, you know, that's that's how head coaches are. Rassi is still very much going to be a presence, as, but he's also respectful and mindful of the fact that Jacques is the head coach and he, he'll give Jacques that time. Yeah. Um, in terms of Jacques' ability as a head coach, I mean that test will come now. But as a as a as a character, he's certainly capable of it. He's strong. He knows exactly what he wants from his players, which is very very important. He's the best defense coach in the world, in my opinion, up yeah. there with Sean Edwards, and he's extremely well respected yeah. amongst the playing group and and worldwide. So you know, myself working with Jacques back in the day, obviously there was, I mean that's how it was. Rossi already was director of rugby. Jacques was literally running the show in terms of the defense and and we were a defensive team you know as a stormers i came from coaching ikes so mm-hmm. i was like this guy who wanted to just throw everything around and run everything but you know eventually what happens is and there might be clashes of personalities and 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 different ideas and how to play the game but at the end of the day what's best for the players is that you work together and you agree on a game plan and 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 you get that game plan and the buy-in from the players. And, and you know, you asked the question earlier on what other Stormers team had that opportunity. Well, it was the 2010 side, yeah. you know, when we made the final at Sweden. That was probably our strongest team on paper that we had over, over the, you know, the last 10, 20 years or whatever the case may be. And we certainly were all on the same page in terms of the way we played. We didn't score f- fancy tries. But we were effective. We had a proper pack, an excellent defense system run by Jacques. You know, and my role was to buy into the the way we and 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 to upskill the players and um, as an attack coach. And and we had a great you know coach in, in head coach in in, in Alistair, 
and he was well respected and well liked. So it was a happy group. Yeah. But um, you know, it's funny when you look back at your Stormers career when I was an assistant and Jacques was there and how we've both grown as coaches over time. And we actually had a chat after the World Cup when I congratulated him and he just said, you know, it's just it's amazing how we were always clashing and differences of opinion, but how he grew as a coach, him and Rusty grew as a coach in Munster. And how they came back seeing the game differently and how their um, management skills had changed over time. And yeah. likewise for me, you know, my ego had also, you know, had, had dropped off a little bit. And, and I also was more open to different ways of playing the game and seeing things differently and how to manage. So, you know, I think that Jacques has come in a long way. And I think that, um, you know, whoever he works with now, you know, will work well. And I think he'll do very well for South Africa. Well, that that's some good succession planning. Thank goodness for the Springboks. We yes. We're not <laughs> changing everything again after four years. But going back to you, when you became Stormers coach at late twenty fifteen, it was Eddie Jones had come in World Cup Rugby World Cup twenty fifteen. He does well with Japan. Western Province go and hire him. Great coup for Western Province to be fair. World class coach, respected. And then within ten days, he, he's leaving Cape Town. Then there's a big sort of succession scramble. Uh Hatzmal wants John Mitchell. The board says no. They come to you. How how did that feel? Like because you obviously knew that Eddie was there. Okay, he's gone. They wanted Mitchell. He's he's not gonna come for whatever for various reasons. They come to me. Did how did that make you feel and uh, or did you not bother with that? Was that just like, well, I don't care, this is my opportunity. At the time when when Eddie was there um, I was super excited because selfishly for my own career, I was going to learn from one of the best. Yeah. Um, and I was too young to be a head coach. Well, I mean, I had been coaching for six years and as, as an assistant, but I still had a huge amount to learn, mm. um, both as an assistant um, and and even more so as a head coach because um, I'd literally only been a head coach of the province under 21 side. So for me, you know, was a real coup for Eddie to come in because, um, you know, we were all going to benefit from yeah. Eddie, you know, and there's, you know, there's rumors of how, you know, hard he is and, but you can only learn from the best and, and through good work ethic and understanding. And he was going to teach us the world of rugby in my opinion. So I was super excited about it. And when he left, um, you know, it was disappointing. And, and, and to be fair to him, he was pretty genuine when, you know, when he spoke to us and, I mean, who can not turn, you know, you can't turn down the England opportunity. England's probably the biggest job in world rugby, right? <laughs> well, it is. Financially, you know, I mean, as a coach, you're going to get paid Well, I mean, the and... paycheck is massive. So, yeah. I mean, and he's earning pounds. You yeah. know, so, <laughs> he's um, the players at his disposal and the money that's accessible to grow the game just yeah. for his team. So, it is the best or biggest job in, in world rugby. So, I mean, no one complained, you know, and no one was bitter the fact that Eddie had left. I think it was just a case of a missed opportunity that we could have, both players and, and fellow assistant coaches could have learned from him. Um, you know, when it came to John and, and the rumors were going around about John, again, another massive missed opportunity for Western Province because I understand, you know, the board wanted to keep it in-house and wanted to recruit within. I mean, and that's their prerogative. But if you thought about the bigger picture, John Mitchell would have been an outstanding yeah. acquisition for Stormers in Western Province. Right? And for young coaches like yourself. Well, again, mm. uh, there's nobody better to learn from than somebody who has coached the All Blacks at the highest level. He's coached successfully at provincial level. Um, every team that he touches, he has changed them. Yeah. You know, you can see the, the John Mitchell blueprint. 
it doesn't matter if he's a difficult guy or not a difficult guy or players, you know, struggle to work with him. The fact remains is that he's a rugby genius. He's been able to make average teams into good teams and competitive teams. And and he comes with a good pedigree, you know. And um and for all of us, it would have been a massive, massive yeah. um learning curve. And I, I you know, two, three years under John Mitchell or under Eddie Jones, in terms of my career, selfishly, um, would have been amazing. Um, because I was just I wasn't ready to become the head coach. Um and for the players in the system, it would have been amazing. Yeah. You just look how the Bulls transformed and how they've lost their way now since he's left. Yeah, then I got the the opportunity, and I was never going to say no, Craig. Of course not. I, I mean, I'm you know I was what was I forty or thirty nine at the time, and um, you know I had come successfully out of an under twenty one campaign. I'd been working underneath Rusty and Alistair for six years. I'd, I I had good knowledge of the game, and um, and I guess my only sort of trick was to learn how to manage players and and, and manage the whole group. And uh, I had you know Kate Smile backing me and. Um, and I couldn't say no. So in hindsight, I probably should have because you know it's it's um, and I would have liked those other two guys there. But you know it was it it is what it is. And the, those first two years, I learned so much yeah. about myself and about how to manage a team and about the game. You know, if you got the best and you learn from the best, it can only benefit your career going forward. But you had to sink or swim, and you swam yes. pretty well. I mean, they your team got to the playoffs both both first two years. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we know the structure was that you didn't play any New Zealand sides in that first year until you suddenly ran into the Chiefs in the yeah. in Newlands. Now, I mean, that was a very chastening game, but uh, it was probably a good lesson as well that, 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 to remind people the Chiefs won the Super Rugby quarterfinal sixty twenty one at Newlands, and yeah. it was a it was Thanks a real line us. in the sand day. <laughs> Sorry about reminding you, <laughs> um, Craig. Absolutely, that's probably the biggest rugby. Um, lesson I've ever had both as a player and as a coach and I'm grateful for it because um, you know I would never have improved as a coach and I think that the team would never have improved if we hadn't incurred that loss we had played some really good rugby that year and um, and granted it was against Australian opposition and I, I think maybe the South African teams weren't as strong as they um, they should have been um, but we were good you know and 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 but I always had this feeling that we hadn't played and experienced this New Zealand temper because at that stage New Zealand rugby was playing on another level and you could just see it the way they were going about things the temper that they were playing at they were trying things differently and we were trying to play a temper game but we weren't near fit enough we weren't near skilled enough to do so and and we came up short but what that did do it forced me to you know look in the mirror and say okay cool what do I need to change as a coach how do I change these players and equip them to be better, to play, you know, a more fast-tempered game and and to beat these New Zealand sides? And um, and what do we have to change in the system? And I spent the whole of November, December, you know, traveling abroad, seeking new ideas. How do we go about it from a conditioning perspective, from a game perspective, skills? We went to Saracens, we went to Ireland, we went all over. And we got all these different sort of ideas because obviously we can't travel to New Zealand because we're against them. But yeah, yeah. we try to pick up as much as we could from foreign coaches based in Europe, um, whether they're Kiwis or Aussies or even South Africans. And and we just and the biggest thing was from a conditioning point of view. And uh, we came back the next year and we played, in my opinion, our best rugby in yeah. 2017. Was that the game? That, that was the year when Dylan Lades made that. Correct. Ridiculous offload when you beat the Chiefs. Correct. In around Robin play. Yes. So it was amazing. They'd beaten you 60 21 
the turnaround, eight months before. Exactly. The turnaround in eight months was phenomenal. And, and that's credit to the players you know, and the other coaches. Obviously, we acquired Paul Feeney from New Zealand. He helped from a skill point of view. But our conditioning and the attitude and, and what we created um, at, at Storm is, you know, and, and as I say, credit goes to the players because they had to go through that change themselves. I mean, it became a far more professional setup. It was a little bit more longer hours, you know, a lot of emphasis on skills. You know, instead of one session a day, it was two or three sessions on skills a day. Um, the conditioning element had to change. They had to change their mindset on that. And um, and and we became a fitter side, a more capable side. And uh and and through that came confidence and and the ability you know through the skills and through the conditioning came confidence in our game and that's why we were able to throw those kind of passes that's why we were able to beat the chiefs and we lost what was it um, 17, 11, 11. Yeah, yeah 17 11 yeah the same team same and so it was a 50 point turnaround in exactly a year. and yeah. and and we should have won that game in my opinion and we leaked to try in the last minute um, i think Dylan Lays tackled in and they did a decent pass onto the edge to to but the whole game, you know, there was critical stages where we we missed kicks for poles, and we had an opportunity to go ahead um, by I think six points or so, and 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 with that confidence, we would have won that game. And I think that as a Stormers group, you know, we would have gone into that semi final. It would have been a home semi final again, mm. and it was another decent opportunity. But again, we came up against a a team that again could turn it on, um, you know, with experienced coaching staff and some experienced players like Cruden and 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 Co. And um, and we lost that one, y'all. Okay, so in 18 and 19, obviously results went a little bit south, but that also coincided with a couple of things, a lot of injuries, a fixture list that put you away from home for six of the first 10 games for two years running, which was really unusual. Usually yeah. it's one year you get a bad fixture list and exactly. the next year, so that was unusual. And then all the boardroom stuff started really yeah. coming to the forward Western province, um, you know, with no money and potential, you know, players don't get paid, coaches don't get paid. So you had all of the stuff going on in the background. I mean, how destabilizing was that for the team? It was massive, Craig. You know, I think that um, look, it all sort of started. Uh, you know, and again, if you look at back those quarterfinals we played against the Chiefs, where um, the stadiums were empty, hmm. and and you know, it came down to, you know, part of it was ticket pricing, where they just increased the size, you know, the, the amount of tickets that were that you had to pay, and and so we, I, I remember Sam Kane coming into and speaking to Paul Feeney saying. You know where's the crowd because that's the intimidating factor. You know, and yeah. there's there's twenty thousand people missing. Mm. You know, from both those quarterfinals, and um, and you know the players felt that. You know, like, oh, why? You know, we play in a quarterfinal. We it's blood, sweat, and tears, and we know that we got an edge on these guys. And you know, we're giving everything, and um, and there's no one there. And it begs the question: Well, what was going on behind the scenes? I mean, I, I'm just I'm giving that as an example. Well, you can't get fired for of, ticket prices now. No, like exactly, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, and that's not. Uh, you know, I just wanted to give an example yeah. of how the players get affected by these decisions. Then, you know, there was the the you know the liquidation, and again, I was you know I was I was I had to manage our players. You know, there was I mean, obviously we had a director in Kate, and part of his job was to do that, and the CEO's job. But you know, I had players phoning me going, "Well, you know, are we going to get paid?" and People are concerned, you know, and and, sure. and and they've got families and they've got homes to pay for and school fees and whatever the case. And and it was a very much an unset, unsettling part, you know, um, in in my early days as a coach. And all these things started to contribute to an unsafe um, environment. Um, you know, when you don't win that quarterfinal, there's pressure. There's pressure from the board. There's pressure from um, executive level. There's pressure from the public. There's pressure from the media because they want results. 
but not knowing what was going on behind the scenes of, you know, like somebody. And, and I, it must be said, no one did not get paid. Yeah. Everybody got paid. But there was always the rumor. Mm. You know, when Dobbo and those guys won the Curry Cup final in um, in Durban, again, again, agreed amount was done between the players and the union. And then the, the, the union did, did not want to pay it. Once they, they had won Ridiculous. It. And they said, well, it's an away final. <laughs> so the union doesn't benefit financially for it. Now, how can you agree to something and then say you're not going to pay it afterwards yeah. while the trophy's sitting in the in the cabinet back at you? While the president walked around the stadium holding the trophy, well, I might add. You know, so, <laughs> so it, it, all these sort of things start to contribute to an unsafe environment. The players are training hard, the coaches are training hard, coaching hard, or whatever the case may be, but all these little things start to contribute. I had to then negotiate going into my 2018 year, I think it was, um, you know, with the players because the players didn't want to train because the, the union hadn't paid up, you know, the bonuses. And so then we had to agree that there was a bonus that was agreed to at some stage and then it's got to be shared between players and management. So eventually, as I said, no one didn't get paid but it was just the process and how it was done. And it was all the angst to get there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then then there's rumors of got, you know, cutting squad sizes because of the final. And 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 the union and and the, the company has every right to cut those um the squad sizes because there's just not enough money in the game That's a reality, to keep right? 150 contracted players. And credit to them now they've done that. Yeah. They've cut it down. And they're going to probably have to cut more. You know, just to survive. But um yeah, and I guess that injuries as well played a role, and and that's got to do with the way that we decided to play that year, which concerns me about you know the current game plan as well. Is that you know we wanted to go a little bit more confrontational. We knew we had a big pack, um, you know, we had some quick, you know, small but quick outside backs who had, had decent work rate, and um, but. Injuries started to creep in because of the confrontational way that we wanted to play. And I remember Richard Kaui saying on on breakdown, you know, the Stormers are going to be a tough side to beat, but I don't know how sustainable it is in terms of the way they're going to play because they're going to have an injury list a mile long. Mm. And what he said in the first in the second week of the tournament happened in the last two weeks of the tournament where we just ran out of players. So a combination of things happening behind the scenes, um, you know, you know, uncertainty, especially in 2019, you know, Hetzmal leaving as director of rugby, you know, he was no longer there to, you know, be a mediator, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, we can debate that. Um, you know, it's um, all these sort of started to contribute, the uncertainty of the future, um, agents being told that there are no more contracts, you know, all these things contributed yeah. to this pressure and this cauldron that was busy bubbling and, away. And for you, weren't you told you have to beat the Bulls this weekend, otherwise you're fired? Yeah. I mean, you were pretty much told that, weren't you? Yeah, no, on the morning. I mean, that's a ridiculous way of management, right? Yeah, so <laughs> the morning the morning um, of the game, they informed me that, um, yeah, that I, was, uh, that I was to be fired if we didn't beat the Bulls. So it doesn't, <laughs> you know, it's it's it doesn't um, it doesn't help in terms of um, – and and obviously the players found out about that. For the record, you did beat the Bulls that day. We did beat the Bulls, and we played bloody well as well. You know, <laughs> it was one of our best games. But you know, those are the unnecessary things that creep into the game. You know, which no coach or no playing group needs. No. Uh, if we think about the Curry Cup performance of Western Province last year, uh, with 
with Dobbo as the head coach. It's the first time in a decade that we hadn't qualified. I think in a decade that we hadn't qualified for a semi-final. Hmm. Now, there's a, there's a combination of things, again, that was contributing to that. Dobbo had to recruit players. He didn't know how much money he had at his disposal. Um, players were threatening to go overseas. Players were threatening to go somewhere else. It was such an uncertain time. His own management hadn't been contracted. Um, there was uncertainty amongst them. And so, you know, all these things contribute to um, a team sort of underperforming. On paper, we had an outstanding team, but all these other countries, and then you've got to go with, as you say, public demand, media, whatever the case may be, it just builds up. And so it's not, um, and it just wasn't a safe environment in those last two years, both in terms of Western Province and in terms of Stormers. You've now had to deal with stuff that probably most coaches won't have to deal with at that level. So it can only sort of be to your benefit in the long run. Absolutely. Um, you know, Rassi always told us as coaches, he said, there's no better grounding than coaching at Western Province um, in terms of your career. And how do you, ha- and, and in order to go coach overseas, it's the best place to learn because there's various factors that, that play a role. And it's not just rugby and on the field stuff and tactics and coaching and and training sessions there's a lot more that goes to it so yes i'm extremely grateful what has happened over the last 10 years coaching at stormers in western province and i've got a great relationship with them yes they're things and they know that they can improve on in order to support the team and and to support management and um and there's no better place to coach you know, the, the talent that's available, um, the supporters that we've got. But for me, we learn so much as coaches in this environment. And uh, and to help you become a better coach, there is no better grounding. Absolutely. Rob, I think we'll leave it there. It's been a great pleasure having you on the Maverick Sports Podcast. This podcast is made possible by our Maverick Insiders. Please consider becoming part of our Maverick Insider community where, for a nominal fee every month, you are supporting quality independent journalism. You also get some cool benefits such as Uber vouchers and engagement with our journalists thrown in. Please go to dailymaverick.co.za forward slash insider to sign up and become part of the Maverick Insider community. Also remember to sign up to our Maverick Sports newsletter, which hits your inbox on a Monday and never miss another podcast by signing up on your favorite platform.